During part one of this retreat, I gave a talk about the beginnings of my own Dharma journey and the many ups and downs of practice in those years. And I left off at a point in the early 70s when I first began teaching. I thought tonight, just to pick up the thread of that talk, and talk about the years since then, just the unfolding path of both practice and teaching since the early 70s. And hopefully it will give you some perspective and perhaps be of some help as you're leaving this time of intensive practice after six weeks or three months and beginning your journey in the world again. So in 1973, I had already been in India for about six or seven years, practicing and studying mostly with my first two teachers, Anagarika Munindra and S.N. Goenkaji. And the teaching began very organically. It wasn't like all of a sudden you're teaching. Munindraji suggested after I had been there for quite some time, he would just encourage some of the newer uh, meditators to come speak to me if they had questions about their practice. So for a year or so, it was just like that, and people would come and ask questions. And then I started leading some discussion groups. And that was interesting because there was one guy in those early groups, who was very smart, slightly aggressive, (laughs) very challenging questions. And here I was, it's like I was just beginning, you know, to try to share the Dharma. And it was like always putting me on the spot with these really difficult questions. So even though it was not easy and not even fun, it was great training. You know, it's, I was reminded of, of a story of somebody going to a Zen swordmaster, you know, to be trained. And the first few years, he just, the master had this student just do errands around the temple. And after some time, just as the student was wandering around, the Zen master would pop out from behind a bush and whack him on the head. And he kept doing this in completely unexpected times until the student had to be aware and alert in every moment. Well, this guy with these questions was a little like that. Uh, So I'm actually quite grateful. After some time of doing that, Munindraji asked me (coughs) if I would lead a short retreat, you know, and give some more formal Dharma talks. And I could say that was really the beginning of the formal aspect of teaching. And I remember the very first talk I gave, uh, still quite vivid in my mind, it was on bare attention. And in that talk, I used a Zen haiku poem, which for many years was sort of my signature haiku uh, on retreats. It has fallen into disuse in these last years, but I thought I would bring it back just for old time's sake. And it's really in response to a question that was asked the other night, you know, what exactly is awareness? What is mindfulness? So this is the haiku. I think it's by Basho. Um, He said, the old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. So awareness, mindfulness, is plop mind. You know, it's not the old pond, the frog jumps in, what a beautiful evening it was, it was so romantic. You know, not a big descriptive. Old pond, frog jumps in, plop. Just the sound. Like to be right in the sound of it. That's mindfulness, that's awareness. <clears throat> so we want to keep plop mind, you know, in... So then in 74, 
my body started acting up a bit, and I was having a lot of back trouble. Uh, I was still in India, but it was really quite difficult. And so at that time, I decided uh, to come back to the States. And I had no idea really what I would do. I had spent basically all of my 20s in Asia, you know, first in the Peace Corps and then practicing and studying in India. So 74, I was 30 years old, came back, no idea what to do. I ended up traveling across country uh, from upstate New York out to California with some friends. And while I had been in India in just the last few years, I had met Ramdas in Bodh Gaya, and we had become quite friendly. And so I get to Berkeley, and I thought, well, he may have some ideas of you know what I might do. He knew you know, of my involvement in the practice. So I called up the place he was staying, and I was told that it was one of the days he wasn't seeing people. Okay. I mean, I had traveled 3,000 miles, but <laughs> it was one of the And we were close friends. <laughs> or one of the days he wasn't. So I said, okay, let's just see what happens. So I'm walking down the streets of Berkeley, and... I had to go to the bathroom. So I went into one restaurant, asked if I could use the restroom, and they said no. (laughs) It was only for customers. Well, coming from India, this was like incomprehensible. (laughs) So I walked down the street, I go into a second restaurant. Can I use the restroom? No. So (laughs) it was pretty amazing. Walk down the street, go into a third restaurant, there's Ramdas. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, so we sit down together, we start talking, and he invited me to teach uh, with him a, the meditation section of a big course he was teaching at Naropa Institute uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And this was the first summer that Naropa, this Buddhist uh, experiment, Buddhist college opened uh, in Boulder, and it was kind of like a Buddhist Woodstock. You know, it was kind of the first gathering of people from all over the country <coughs> and even the world who were interested in Eastern meditation philosophy. So Ramdas had this huge class on the Bhagavad Gita. Trungpa Rinpoche was teaching, you know, the basics of Vajrayana Buddhism. Huge excitement. You know, it's a lot of young people uh, had come there. And I was teaching the meditation section of Ramdas's class. And it was great. There was so much interest. I was doing maybe six or seven sessions a day. There was so much interest. And there were 1,500 people in his class. You know, it was, it was like a huge, huge thing. And out of that, out of the teaching of Naropa, at Naropa in that summer of 74, that planted the seeds, really, of uh, the whole Vipassana scene in this country. People got very interested in wanting to pursue the practice. And out of that summer of 74, a month-long course was set up in the Sequoia National Forest in California. We had, I don't remember exactly, but 35 people, maybe 40 people coming for a month. We were all living in tents. It was a very makeshift operation. You know, before going down to that retreat, a whole bunch of us were just sleeping on friends' floors, you know, in Berkeley. Somebody had this old dilapidated truck. We bought all the food for the retreat, loaded on the truck. Halfway down to the Sequoia Forest, the truck caught on fire. (laughs) but somehow you know we were young full of energy none of it mattered you know there was a tremendous kind of fresh enthusiasm for this incredibly exciting undertaking you know a month retreat it was none of us had even contemplated doing something like that in this country 
And in those early years, it was a very grassroots kind of movement. There was no organization. It was just a group of people. You know, we'd get together in different places around the country. You know, let's put on a retreat. And so we would just be going, Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg at that time, and myself, uh, and then later other teachers as well, would just be moving from place to place. It was kind of like a circuit rabbi, you know, <laughs> going around. And after some time of this, we thought, it might be nice to have a center, you know, where people could come to practice. And this was the first intimation of what IMS would become. Little did we know what creating a center would mean. Uh, But we had friends living in Massachusetts and looking around for a place. And then in 75, before, before this place was found, we had the idea to teach a long retreat because we had done the month-long in Sequoia, and then just week or nine-day, ten-day courses. So we had the idea, let's do a three-month course. You know, because many of us had practiced for extended periods in India. So we rented a place up in Bucksport, Maine. It was just, it was a convent, I think. You know, and they were renting the facility. We had a lot of enthusiasm. (laughs) But we're very naive about what does all this mean and how to do it. In 75, Bob Dylan was beginning his Rolling Thunder concert tour. And unbelievably, he was having a concert in Bangor, Maine during the three-month retreat. And what did I know? I had never even, ever been to a rock concert. (laughs) But I saw, though, Bob Dylan's coming, Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell. Let's take all the yogis to the concert. Well, that was, that was my brilliant idea. <laughs> Fortunately, my colleagues outvoted me. <laughs> but that's how things were. It was actually the nuns at Bucksport, you know, of that convent. We were talking about, we're looking for a place, and they suggested contacting the diocese in Worcester, the Catholic Diocese. So friends down here called them. They had this place. It was run by the brothers of the fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. There were only twelve priests left, you know, in the building. It was so they really did need to sell. It was this huge place. For us it was a really big thing. I mean, we were just a bunch of young people recently back from India, didn't really know what we were doing. And even though from the perspective of today's standards, it was amazingly cheap. This whole complex in 90 acres of land was $150,000. That's from this perspective. Back then in 75 and 76, $150,000 we barely had a hundred dollars. Yeah, so it was just this this huge thing. And again, it's just amazing. It just feels like this whole journey has been blessed by the Davis. So a few friends who, you know, had a little family money and were actually working. <laughs> <laughs> we needed to raise fifty thousand dollars for the down payment. And somehow we, we managed to gather $35,000 you know, from a few different friends. I had no idea where the rest would come from. So I'm teaching, this was the second summer at Boulder, at Naropa, teaching various classes. 
I'm just sitting in my apartment. And one day, this young woman walks in, who had been in one of the classes, said, you know, <coughs> I just inherited some money. I have $15,000. I don't quite know what to do with it. <coughs> you know, uh, there's, do you have any use for it? Do I have a use for it? <laughs> so that was the last piece. Yeah, and this is like just walking in the front door. So it does make one wonder, you know, just what forces, what Dharma forces there are in the world. Still, even when we had the money, <coughs> there was a lot of hesitation <coughs> you know, to undertake them. I mean, it was a huge building needing a lot of maintenance and upkeep and would people come? I had no idea. So a few of us were just mulling it over in downtown Barrie when we noticed on some of the monuments in town, and as many of you know, the town motto of Barrie is tranquil and alert. Tranquil and alert. It's on the police cars. (laughs) Tranquil and alert. So... If ever we needed a sign. <laughs> so that was the beginning, the beginning of IMS. We moved in in 76. So for the next 10 years, we were both you know, really working hard at the center, and I and other teachers were uh, following a very busy teaching schedule <coughs> uh, all over this country and in many places around the world, in Europe and Australia. So there was a lot a lot of teaching activity. It's as if we had just caught the wave, you know, in the West of interest in Buddhism. And so it unfolded so organically and so easily. It all just happened. But after 10 years of this, and it was pretty full on, I began to feel in myself there was something missing. Was, you know, and I didn't, I didn't know what. And sometimes, you know, new perspectives can happen in such unexpected ways. I was teaching a retreat in Australia and was watching the 84 <coughs> Winter Olympics. And in the 84 Winter Olympics, the ice skating team of Torval and Dean, two British skaters, got a perfect score in their program. They got a perfect 10. And it was an amazing, it was just an amazing performance. And when I saw that, and when I was watching that, something, I was just inspired by the possibility of perfection. You know, of bringing anything to perfection and what that means and what kind of dedication that means. And so that inspired me to really look at my own life and what I felt was most important and what I would want to bring to perfection if I could. You know, and I realized that I had this unfulfilled aspiration to really do more practice. I had been so busy teaching. I had been sitting every year you know, usually for a month, but it didn't feel enough. And it was seeing Torval and Dean on the ice. That led me to Upandita. (laughs) And we had invited him to come. It was the fall of 84, first visit here, a three-month course, very intensive, as, you know, we've told different stories about it. It was, it was really intense. He's a very demanding teacher. At one point, I told him that going to interviews with him like was, was like going to the dentist. You know, kind of the same feeling of trepidation going into the interview. So in his next talk, he said, some yogis think that coming to see me is like going to the dentist. <laughs> Uh, 
at one point he, he had the idea that it would be good for my practice if I just sat, did a long sitting, sat until the pain came, and then sit through the pain, get to the end of the pain. So I would sit until the pain, and was, you know, I would be sitting hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, and then it started to hurt. You know, and I'd be sitting and sitting and sitting and uh, <laughs> kind of gritting my teeth after a while. And I would always end up changing position. And so I would go in and be reporting this to him. And at one point he said, don't you have any pride in being a man? <laughs> <laughs> And I must confess that I didn't. <laughs> it was actually the furthest, furthest thing from my mind. <laughs> At that time, there were some yogi rooms downstairs in the lower walking, lower walking room at the far end. And I, during that three-month retreat, I was staying in those rooms. And it, it was so intense, and there were times of such great difficulty Remember, this was in the time of the Cold War, still. So I'd be sitting, and yeah, it was really difficult. And I'd hear the planes come over, and I would think, oh, maybe the Russians are going to bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be able to get up. <laughs> it wasn't the most compassionate thought in the world <laughs> for everyone else. <laughs> uh, but over the next eight years, I did a lot of retreats with Sayadaw. It was in this country and in Burma and in Australia. And at a certain point, the relationship really got a lot easier, which was nice. And I remember going in at one interview and he was still in a little bit of a fierce mode, and I reported what was going on, and he just proceeded to point out all the defilements that were in my mind that were contained right in the report. You know, and he's, there was a desire and aversion and irritation, whatever it was, judgment. And he just made this list of defilements, and I just started to laugh. And that laugh was a really important moment, because until then, I would have heard that I would have taken it as a judgment and then judged myself. You know, oh, look at all these defilements. I'm such a terrible yogi. But somehow I had practiced enough, you know, at that point, to that point, where he just pointed it out. And I could, it was the laugh of acknowledgement. Yeah, that's what's there. You know, and it was so interesting. As soon as I got lighter with what was in my mind, Saira Upandita got incredibly lighter in the relationship. It's like he was just waiting for me to lighten up. You know? And so it's really useful you know, to see how we're the ones who are holding the self-judgment and that it's not, ne- not necessary. Sitting with Saira Upandita really taught me a lot about right effort. You know, finding the balance slowly, this was over a long period of time, but finding the balance between not coasting on past experience, you know, because we all develop to a certain extent and it's easy to just start coasting, especially if it's in a relatively um, easy place. So not to coast, to really push the edge but also not to get caught up in expectation, you know, not to get caught up in that striving mind. And I came to learn in, in working with Saidao that learning the art of right effort is really a lifetime practice really learning what right effort is for us at any particular time. When do we need 
to really push a little bit? When do we need to relax? When do we need to be courageous? When do we need to pull back? This is the art of meditation. This is what we continually need to be looking at. So Saira Upandita also at this time suggested that I and some of the other teachers who had been studying with him practice more intensively the Brahma-viharas. You know, and that's where we really immersed ourselves in the practice of metta and uh, the other Brahma-viharas. It's very interesting, as you've probably seen you know, in your practice here. For me, it took quite a while you know, at first I would be doing the phrases and doing the practice and not really feel much. And then as the feelings started coming, I would fall into another trap. I would be continually looking to see how I was doing. You know, I'm doing the practice, oh, getting concentrated, oh, metta feelings getting stronger. Not at all directed towards the other person. <laughs> you know, I would be saying the words, may you be happy, may you be free, how am I doing? So just to see that, you know, to see that tendency of mind and slowly to let go of that. This was a very valuable time for me in the practice because I began to see more clearly the interconnectedness between Vipassana, mindfulness practice, and the Brahma-viharas and metta. You know, so that instead of seeing them as two completely different things, I really saw how they really supported and fed and nurtured each other. There was one little teaching uh, by Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, who was one of the great saints of India. He had this very pithy teaching. He said, do what you do, but don't throw anyone out of your heart. And that, that basically was his teaching. Do whatever you do, but don't throw anyone out of your heart. So we can do this. How do we accomplish this? You know, we can really do it in two ways. We can do it through the meditation practice of metta and compassion and joy and equanimity, starting with ourselves and finally including everyone. So we don't throw anyone out of our heart. We include everyone. And we can do it from the other side. We can do it from the side of insight, the side of wisdom, when we understand that there is no one here, there is no self here to keep anybody out. The deeper our understanding of selflessness, the more complete is the inclusion of all beings. And so it just becomes very mm, inspiring you know, to see how the metta and the vipassana work together. And there's, there's another line from a Japanese poem, I think it's by Isa, where he says, in the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. And to think of our practice as being that. In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. We do it from the side of metta, becoming inclusive in that way. We do it from the side of wisdom. No one there to be separate. So this took me to the early 90s, you know, all of these years with Saira Upandita. But then again, I began to feel <clears throat> something's missing. You know, um, there's some piece that doesn't yet feel fulfilled. And again, I didn't know. I didn't know what. And these cycles themselves are so interesting to me. You know, the cycles of when we're fully engaged in the practice and it feels so complete and so full, and then at a certain point, hmm, 
Maybe there's a piece missing here. And then that gets filled in, and we practice another 10, 15 years. Oh, maybe something else is missing. It points to the vastness of the Dharma. And how we're always just at that edge of what's unknown. And so it's always finding kind of new aspects to practice and understand. One of my friends at that time, uh, who's now teaching, his his name is Lama Suryadas, he had been practicing in the Tibetan tradition and had done two of the Tibetan three-year retreats. So he invited uh, Sharon and myself and some other friends to go meet his teachers, some of his teachers in Nepal. So we went on this little tour and the first introduction to the Dzogchen teachings in the Tibetan tradition. And we met Tulku Ergin, who was one of the great masters, uh, and Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche. A Dzogchen, sometimes another, another term for it, sometimes called the natural great perfection. And the practice in Dzogchen is to learn how to recognize and rest in the open, empty nature of awareness. And there's a phrase from the teachings which has, I've always liked a lot. In, when they talk about resting in the natural state of awareness, it says, rest your weary mind. That's just such a, yes. <laughs> Let's rest our weary minds. So I was introduced to this practice, and at first I had the idea that it was completely different from Vipassana. So as I was practicing it, and whenever I would find my mind just settling into the familiarity of my Vipassana practice, I would pull myself up short internally and say, okay, don't do Vipassana, you're doing Dzogchen. And that's like, I would fixate on what I thought was just the awareness. Don't know anything else. Just be aware of awareness. And that was kind of the attitude in my mind about it. I became fixated on this fabricated state of mind, you know, that I was thinking was awareness, that I was taking to be the natural great perfection. (laughs) But meanwhile, I was in this prison you know, of attachment and fixation. But over time, I saw after a while that clearly this is not the natural great perfection. (laughs) I was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Finally, my mind began to relax a little bit. And I began to see and to feel how the two perspectives, you know, of Dzogchen and Vipassana, how they really blend very well and support each other so easily. I didn't have to make this kind of rigid uh, distinction in my mind. So at this time, there was a really big turning point for me in my practice. And it's the one that fulfilled the peace that I had been looking for, you know, that I didn't know I was looking for. And that happened on a two-month Dzogchen retreat that we were actually doing at a Zen monastery in upstate New York. This is American Dharma. Uh, and Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche was teaching. And he was giving teachings on bodhicitta. And he was talking about, you know, relative bodhicitta, being compassion, and he was talking about ultimate or absolute bodhicitta being emptiness. And just in the course of the talk, something clicked in my mind. I was listening to the teachings, and things fell into place in the understanding that compassion and emptiness are not two different things. That compassion is the activity of emptiness. So this was huge for me, 
It was huge because I somehow had been keeping them separate. So just an expression of that understanding, I think, which we may have mentioned uh, you know, in past weeks, but a teaching by Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, when he said, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the selfless nature, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. Compassion is the activity of emptiness. So it just brought things together in the most beautiful way. And this led me to a whole new understanding of the bodhisattva vows, you know, which are more commonly expressed in the Mahayana tradition, but I had been reading about them for years and years. You know, just for those of you who may not be familiar, one there are many expressions of them, but one expression is, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. So I had been reading and reflecting on these bodhisattva vows for a long time. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. It seemed like a beautiful idea and totally impossible. I mean, I just didn't see how in the world could I save all beings? <laughs> you know, it just it just seemed impossible. It just so I just put them aside. Okay, this is it's a beautiful expression of an aspiration, but there wasn't much personal connection. But then with this understanding of bodhicitta, that compassion is the activity of emptiness, suddenly these vows made more sense to me. If we have these aspirations or similar ones and they're resting on the shoulders of a self, they're too big. You know, how could a self ever fulfill these? But if we see that compassionate activity is just the working of selflessness, of emptiness. It's not based, it's not resting on a notion of self. It's just the activity of dharma. It's the activity of empty phenomena. It's the activity of wisdom. Then it just becomes a way of life unfolding. It's not self-centered. So this was this was really a, a big turning point. So I was happily settling into this new fulfillment of bringing bodhicitta and the whole heart space of bodhicitta into the practice, you know, of vipassana, and to the extent I was doing a little zochen practice, it all became one. And Bodhicitta had kind of filled out a missing piece for me. But then a big spiritual crisis (laughs) suddenly was looming on the horizon. I realized that my Burmese teachers and my Tibetan teachers were saying quite different things about the nature of reality, the nature of freedom, the nature of awakening. In the Burmese teachings, freedom, ultimate freedom, transcends even awareness. Awareness itself is seen as a conditioned phenomena. And Nibbana, ultimate truth, transcends even awareness. While in the Tibetan Dzogchen teachings, and also in some of the Thai forest tradition, they have a different perspective, 
where pure awareness is freedom. Freedom transcends awareness. Freedom is awareness. Great teachers. People I had tremendous respect for. People who I felt were realized. Not speaking just philosophically or theoretically. People who had felt had really experienced the truth. Saying opposite things about what I felt to be most important in my life. This was a crisis. What to do? I became plagued by the question, and really plagued, who's right? Because I thought, if what the Burmese is saying is right, these Tibetan teachings must be wrong. And if the Tibetan teachings are right, these Burmese teachings must be wrong. And my mind was tormenting me, going back and forth. And I was trying to figure it out with my mind. I was trying to figure it out intellectually, that if somehow I could just think it through, then I would know. I was on this one two-month retreat, the first month of the retreat, my mind was completely engaged with this dilemma. You know, and it was tormenting. It was real, I felt like the whole, my whole spiritual path depended on a resolution of this. So it was a very, very vivid uh, time. The resolution finally came when I realized, finally, that I was asking the wrong question. That the question, who's right, was not the right one. So I reframed the question. Instead of trying to figure out who was right, I asked the question, is there one Dharma of liberation that contains them both, that embraces them both? And this led me to two understandings. Just by reframing the question, all of a sudden I could drop out of that polarity. Is there one Dharma of liberation that embraces both points of view? So that led me to two understandings. The first was really important. And that is that with respect to the fully awakened mind, I didn't know. I didn't know. I knew the Tibetan teaching said this, the Burmese teaching said this, but I didn't know. And that not knowing was tremendously freeing. I kind of framed it, it became a little mantra for me, who knows. But it wasn't the who knows of confusion. It wasn't the who knows of bewilderment. It was the who knows of openness. I realized, I don't know. Relax. Just settle back. Do the practice. And let it unfold. So that was the first. The first understanding that was so helpful. The second enabled me to settle back into a variety of practices. And that was the realization that all the teachings from all the different sides and all the different traditions really are skillful means for liberating the mind and not statements of ultimate truth. I had been taking the teachings as being, yes, this is a statement of ultimate truth. Of course, if there's another teaching that says the opposite, there's going to be a problem. But if we take all teachings as skillful means for liberating the mind, then we simply have to ask the very pragmatic question, do they work? Even with quite opposing teachings, they can each serve to liberate the mind. You know, there are just a few images which, which express this, because I think it's a very important understanding to integrate into our practice famous example, you know, of when there's a finger pointing at the moon, 
what should we look at? <laughs> it's useless to look at the finger. The finger is pointing to something. The teachings are pointing to something. Are we attached to the words or are we actually looking at what they're pointing to? The writer Wei Wu Wei had another little aphorism. He said, disciples, devotees, what are most of them doing? Worshipping the teapot instead of drinking the tea. It's so easy to worship the teapot, to get attached to the teapot. My teapot is better than your teapot. It's older, it's more beautiful. It's, it's not the teapot. We want to be drinking the tea. So I framed this for myself, this whole understanding, just in a little phrase, metaphysics as skillful means. Instead of metaphysics as statements of ultimate truth, it's all the metaphysical systems and teachings as skillful means. So then instead of pitting one against the other, we just see, okay, is this teaching helping to free the mind from greed and hatred and delusion? It's helpful. Is this teaching helping to cultivate greater wisdom and love and compassion. Metaphysical underpinnings really don't matter. They are all skillful means, and that's the measure we need to apply. So this made it possible just to open to, to learn from, to practice from many different angles and many different sides. Because... I could then see them all as skillful means for liberating the heart. And all all the traditions converge in an understanding of what it is that liberates the heart. The metaphysics may be very different. The concepts may be very different. All the Buddhist traditions and maybe many other spiritual traditions as well Converge in the understanding that the heart is liberated through non-clinging. That that is the nature of the free mind. Buddha expressed very clearly, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. It's not only an instruction for practice, it is a description of the liberated mind, the mind free of clinging. So now when people ask me what I practice, do you practice Vipassana, do you practice Thai Buddhism, Burmese Buddhism, Dzogchen? I practice non-clinging. Everything else is simply a skillful means to support us in that practice. So this was the Dzogchen period. There's the early India period, there's the Upandita period, there's the Dzogchen period. In recent years, in the last couple of years, I've been studying with some other Burmese Saidaos, Pauk Saidao and Saidao Utejaniya. And again, it's just so interesting because they're quite different, different methods, very different emphases in practice. And yet, in the practice of each of them, I see how they both support each other. The work on, with concentration, with Pa'oksaidao, supports the stability of awareness, that, and the continuity of awareness that Utejaniya emphasizes. And the checking the attitude that Utejaniya just stresses over and over again, check the attitude in the mind, which we've been emphasizing a lot, helped me a lot tremendously in the practice of concentration. 
because as I was doing that practice and watching my attitude, I noticed a little striving. When I checked the attitude, mind relaxed. It concentrated more easily. So everything fits together. And that's the great beauty of the Dharma. So last year, I was on sabbatical for a year, not teaching, and did a long retreat. Did a a five-month retreat. And right in the middle, I had a few sittings. And you probably, in, in your time here, you know, sometimes you just have a couple of sittings and everything falls into place. Well, I had a few sittings like that where all of these different teachings, it's like the Vipassana teachings and my understanding of Dzogchen and Zen and Tejaniya and the concentration, it all kind of just fell into this beautiful hole. (laughs) (laughs) W-H-O-L-E. Maybe it would have been better if it had fallen into... (laughs) And it all began with a reflection of the Buddha's enlightenment song. You know the famous house builder quote? After his enlightenment it said, the tradition says that he, he uttered this in his heart, not necessarily out loud, but this is what came to his mind. And I, I wrote it down. It says, O house builder, house builder of self, you have now been seen. You will build no house again. The rafters are broken, the ridgepole shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving. So that came to mind. We've talked about this a little bit during the retreat. The power of that statement, achieved is the end of craving. What an amazingly simple and direct expression of the enlightened mind. This is what the Buddha is saying directly after his attainment of Buddhahood. Right? So it's very unambiguous. Attained is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So just in those sittings on the retreat, something shifted for me. And instead of taking that to be some far-off attainment that maybe someday we'll practice and we'll come to the end of craving, I saw that it was really a practice in the moment. That moment to moment, we can be watching, we can be seeing, in a moment, is the mind craving? Is it reaching out? Is it grasping at? Or not? Craving? Not craving. You know, and so we can begin to experience at least a taste of the freedom that the Buddha talked about, even if it's just for a moment. Right? We, ha- we may have a long way to go until we've achieved the final end of craving, but in the moment, we can really have that taste. And so in that sitting, and I would suggest for all of us in our practice to really hold that understanding very deeply and be watching moment to moment what's the heart the heart mind doing you know is there that movement of craving toward the object or not then i reflected on the zochen teachings you know about the nature of mind the nature of awareness and it's really saying the same thing there are teachings in the zochen tradition where it says, awareness means the wisdom mind free of clinging. It says, if you don't cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. It's the same thing. You know, and so we could say in, in that tradition, rigpa is the term used for the nature of mind, the empty nature of awareness, the mind of no craving, the mind of no clinging. It's what we come back to. So in Vipassana, we stop clinging 
we train ourselves to let go of clinging through a refined perception of the three characteristics. We see the impermanence, the unreliability, the selflessness. We see there's nothing to cling to. And so the mind drops back. On the Dzogchen side, or some of the Thai tradition, we recognize the nature of that awareness that's not clinging, and then practice stabilizing it. So it's just approaching it from two different sides to accomplish the same thing. So this speaks again to that image of ice and water that I mentioned last week. You know, craving, clinging is ice, water is the mind of not clinging, unobstructed. So we just watch, moment after moment. But as I said, sometimes we think it's water, we think it's not clinging, but it's not. Right? There can be a subtle fixation, you know, what I call slush mind. Subtle fixation, subtle attachment, subtle identification with awareness itself. So this is a very subtle place to really begin to see, even as everything is flowing, unobstructed, all the objects, thoughts and sensations and the breath and sounds and the whole world is flowing, empty of self, but that last corner of the mind, the last holdout, of fixation is the identification we have with the knowing, with the awareness. Well, that's who I am. So we reify the awareness. So in the last few minutes of the talk, I just want to suggest ways of cutting through this identification with awareness. And it's, it's very interesting and very subtle. One of a well-known Tibetan master, uh, contemporary Trangu Rinpoche, he said, the failure to recognize the mind's true nature, right, the empty nature of mind, occurs because the empty aspect of the mind's nature, the empty aspect, is not recognized due to the appearance of its lucid aspect. So what does this mean? It means that as we're looking at the nature of mind, the knowing aspect, the cognizing aspect, is much more apparent than the empty aspect. So that's what the mind fixates on. That's what we identify with. It's like the awareness aspect obscures the empty aspect. So what to do about this? There are a few few little teachings that just point directly to this understanding. And I, I feel that this is just the piece that can really open up something for us. And it all has to do, or it all begins, just in, in the way of practice where we're looking at our minds. We're looking at the mind, looking for the mind, and not finding anything. You know, when we look for our minds, oh, there it is. No, there's nothing to find. And as one teacher said, the not finding anything, when we look for the mind, when we look at the mind, that moment of not finding anything is the finding. And so pay attention to the experience in that moment of looking for the mind and not finding, okay, what's that moment like? So this is a little poem from the Chinese, translated by Thomas Merton, and it's called Starlight and Non-Being. 
So starlight is going off in search of non-being. Okay? We are starlight. That's us. In search of non-being. Okay? So she kept her gaze fixed on the deep void. All day long she looked, and she saw nothing. She listened. I'm looking for non-being. She looked and she saw nothing. She listened, but she heard nothing. She reached out to grasp and grasps nothing. Then Starlight exclaimed at last, This is it. This is the furthest yet. Who can reach it? Remember, looking for non-being. And if on top of all this, non-being is, who can understand it? So it's looking for the mind, looking for non-being, nothing to find, nothing to grasp, nothing to see, nothing to hear. We look for the mind. That moment of not finding. Pay attention to that moment. Okay, one more little teaching, in case you missed it on this one. This is the last, <laughs> last chance, <laughs> this time around. And just before I do this last little piece, keep in mind that with all these teachings, you know, sometimes we, we really do have just kind of a sudden recognition, and sometimes not. Sometimes it may even be confusing, or what is this all about? But these are all seeds, and I've had so many times, you know, when I'd be sitting and something would come to mind that I had heard weeks or months or years ago. And when the conditions are all right, it's that little piece comes up and is understood. Right? So you don't have to be concerned, you know, if, so, if this is meaningful to you now, fine. If it's not meaningful, let it be a seed. Okay, so sometimes this recognition of the empty nature of awareness, sometimes it comes like that, and sometimes it's after years and years of struggle. And there's a famous exchange between Bodhidharma, you know, who is said to have brought Buddhism from India to China, and who would become his first disciple. Uh, and I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but I think it's something like Huayka, H-U-I-K-E. So Bodhidharma is sitting in his cave. You know, he, he was one of these fierce old Zen masters. He's sitting in his cave, facing a wall for seven years. And Huayka, who has just been searching and searching and struggling and suffering, sitting outside the cave, beseeching Bodhidharma to come teach him. You know, he was, he was really suffering. And finally, Bodhidharma comes out, and he says, what's the problem? You know, and he says, I've been, Swaka says, I've been suffering so much. You know, please give me the teachings. Please pacify my mind. And Bodhidharma says, Show me your mind. And Wega says, I've looked for it everywhere and can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, There, it's already pacified. The not finding is the finding. Understanding the empty nature, it's already pacified. Nothing more to do. Except remember. So it was all in this last period of retreat, just in this last year, that all of these pieces came together. You know, from the Buddhist teaching on the Four Noble Truths and the end of craving being the end of suffering, or from the Dzogchen point of view, 
the empty nature of mind, or from the Zen point of view, you know, the teachings on no mind. It all comes together. It's, it's like the Dharma is this multifaceted jewel, you know, and we can learn from so many different sides and different aspects. I'd just like to close with some advice. And this is from another Tibetan teacher, Zigar Kongtrul. He said, the potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It is up to you. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.